Hello, everybody, and welcome to the China Tech Investor Podcast, powered by TechNode, seeking truth from facts when it comes to Chinese tech stocks and IPOs. I'm Elliot Zagman, and with me is a man who, as an American in China right now, in this week in late September, has had the opportunity to enjoy both the start of fall and the midpoint of fall on the same day. It's James Hall. Okay,、um, is that a happy mid-autumn festival thing? Well, it, it was. It was that the the solar fall、mm. and the mid-autumn festival occurred roughly on the same point. Oh, I didn't know.、That. Did you know that? Did not. Yeah. Anyways. Okay. <laughs> Learn something every day. Happy Friday. The、uh, little disclaimer: this podcast was, or the interview part with Ming Jia was recorded. Yesterday on the twenty third China time, so twenty second I think U S time, and we're talking about lots of things that are changing. But here's a disclaimer:、uh, this is an educational and potentially entertainment podcast.、Uh, we may have positions in the companies mentioned. I don't have any positions in Evergrande, but、uh, we try to say so when we do. But that could change after we record.、Uh, this is not investment advice. Get your investment advice somewhere else. Better yet, do your own research. And、uh, good luck out there. Yeah, depending on what part of this podcast you're listening to, it was recorded on either uh, either uh, September twenty second, twenty third, or twenty fourth, depending on、uh, on what continent it was recorded in and what day it was recorded on.、Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we have we have Ming Zhao on to talk about、uh, Evergrande. Obviously, Evergrande has been all in the news, but Ming is、uh, is a really interesting、uh, Twitter follow, at least,、uh, and she is a, a wears a number of hats、uh, in. She's a Has worked in in tech and is also a founder right now. But also,、uh, her Twitter has a very very informative threads just about every single week on things like tech, finance,、uh, and often delving into China as well. But before we get into our interview with Ming,、uh, James, anything that is is on your mind or、uh, that you've been noticing in the news you want to cover? I mean, just to, I'll just say、uh, with regards to Evergrande, you know, we are gonna. We do talk about it, and it's like at a point in time, there's a lot of things happening that are changing. You know, I just saw that Evergrande、uh, bondholders were, I think, supposed to get their interest payment yesterday, and they haven't gotten it yet. Now that doesn't mean there's a default. They, there's like a 30-day grace period, and then there's the kind of game theory-ish sort of situation where do should the bondholders actually call a default, or should they try to negotiate more and Get you know have some sort of changes made to their to the loan terms or bond terms. So there's a you know a lot of things happening. Evergrande is is the biggest, right? I think it's the biggest in terms of debt real estate developer in the world, which is you know says something. But yeah, that's、uh, that's what I want to say about Evergrande. Yeah, I, I think one thing that I mean, we didn't we talked we touched on it touched on it a little bit,、uh, but one thing that I've noticed we we talk we also talk about H and A and some of these other firms that have you know famously acquired a lot of debt and then kind of gone you know the way of of that Evergrande seems to be going right now,、uh, and one theme that we see you know with a lot of these firms is you have a lot of times you have.、Uh, 
companies that aren't in real estate trying to get into real estate <laughs> in China, or at least when we were there, this was probably a few years ago, or when I was there. Uh, you know, it's, I don't, we don't see it as much anymore. But then you also see real estate companies getting into other spaces as well as they try to chase where they can access the most capital. And I think what we've seen with, with Evergrande, I think a, a good story, uh, something that was, that got my attention was a few years ago when Evergrande's health division. So Evergrande is a real estate firm. Evergrande's health division attempted to acquire Faraday Future, which is an, an electric vehicle company. So this was, this put off a number of alarm bells in my own head. Yeah, you're blowing my mind. This is crazy. Right. So it's how, so first of all, it's a, it's a real estate company. It's kind of odd that it has a health division, but then why is its health division going into uh, uh, electric vehicles, right? And, and I think that we see this, we see this with, with a lot of these heavily, heavily leveraged companies in China. What they're doing is they're often trying to chase these areas where the government is making capital available, right? So, uh, we'll, and we'll talk about this in the, uh, in our conversation with Ming. I think if, I wish I had one of those little like keyboard button things where you can push a button and it says something. And this one, I would want it to say, subsidies <laughs> right. you know, like push it <laughs> right like a little, little drop like an audio drop like they have on a morning show but that yeah <laughs> ding yeah but the, yeah but i think it's it's something that's really that's pretty consistent and once you start to, to see this you kind of see it everywhere or you start to notice it you start to see it everywhere and that was it was definitely the case with evergrand where they're they're chasing where this capital becomes available where the subsidies are available and the more that they can grow then the harder it is for them to fail Right. And this was, was a business model that for a long time worked in China and that, you know, that had a lot of defenders because there were a lot of firms that benefited a lot of people by doing it this way. And it seemed silly. It seemed like, oh, this is, this is not going to work. But for a long time, it absolutely did work. <laughs> so, uh, it, it was, you know, they're right until they're wrong, you know? Uh, so, so, um, yeah, uh, this is this is the case yeah. we see there, and I think this is another thing to look into with some of these other firms as well. When we start to think about who might see a fate that is similar to Evergrande's in the future, so Evergrande, their shares are traded in Hong Kong. Three, 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 four threes is the the stock security code. It was up six seventeen point six percent yesterday off some semi, I guess okay for them news that there would be some sort of controlled bailout but uh unclear to me what that really means for equity holders so yeah i'm not i'm not getting involved here but another thing kind of not related to evergrand i'd like to just mention is that friend of the pod ray ma i think she was our first guest ever yeah guest number one episode number two yeah yeah uh you know, I over think, at Tech yeah. Buzz China, she's uh, doing these live casts, and she did one last night with Raymond Huang, who I think both of us know, who was the yeah, ex-Mogu yeah. strategy officer. He had some interesting views about live commerce. I think this will live cast will come out some point in the future. But one, uh, two of the takeaways. So one was that a lot of live commerce uses promotions as an incentive to get viewers to kind of spend, and then the other thing, kind of, sort of together with that is that just one of the benefits i guess of live commerce is that you're getting you're kind of getting all these people that are watching you, you know it's like a different it's not it's also not like um a normal live streaming type of 
skill. You have to like, it's more like QVC, right? Where you have to like, you know, get people to transact. So you're kind of pulling forward some demand maybe from these people or you're getting them to buy something that they normally wouldn't probably have discovered or or you're getting them to buy things that they are very familiar with and therefore can like kind of trust the the quality and all that but also at a pretty good discount so anyway it was was interesting he did say some things about kind of the big uh live commerce players he didn't sound terribly bullish on Quaisho. so but anyway yeah i i I, it's hard to there are a number of signs that where I can understand that. But yeah, I, I, I highly encourage, I've worked with Raymond in the past um, and I highly encourage uh, our listeners to, to check him out. I mean, in, in addition to the the professional, you know, benefits of our relationship, I, I've really enjoyed just kind of, he, he opened up, he really introduced me to a lot of kind of how the, the fashion industry and the textile industry and it, that whole, that whole value chain works in China, particularly, particularly in places like, uh, like Zhejiang and, uh, and Guangdong province. Hmm. Um, and it was, it, it, it was really, really eye opening experience and, and really cool. And he has a lot of knowledge on that. So anyways, little, if you, if, if you ever, you know, come across him, come across Raymond and, uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I encourage you to, to listen to what he has to say. But anyways, okay. uh, should we get moving on to our, uh, our conversation with Ming? Let's do it. Okay. Uh, first of all, techno.com slash newsletters for your daily dose of China tech. <laughs> now, let's get on to our conversation with Ming Zhao. Joining us today is Ming Zhao. Ming is an ex-quant trader, ex-cyber hacker turned Silicon Valley founder. She's currently building a new trading tool for retail investors, which uh, there's, there will be more details to come uh, in Q1 of 2022. But for our listeners and those who are on uh, on Twitter, they may know her as more of a, um, a sort of textile uh, magnate, as every week she puts out very informative uh, and thoughtful threads on finance, tech, uh, and sometimes uh, China as well. So uh, right now, uh, we're going to be talking about Evergrande, which uh, she wrote a thread about earlier this week. So Ming, thank you for joining us. Yeah, thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. All right. So so uh, for those of us who have been following Evergrande for a while, I mean, ever since I, you know, I think 2017, you know, 2016, we've been looking at this debt accumulation, uh, and it's been eye popping. Uh, so how are they able to take on so much debt? And then how are they able to kind of operate a little bit as a shadow bank as well? Like what, how are they able to, to leverage this much in the first place? Yeah. So we can start with, uh, talking about like M2 or M2 money supply in China since 2008. So, uh, this kind of ties back to, you know, what the Fed is doing in in America. So if you kind of if you think about it, like at this point, everyone knows the meme like money printer go burr, right? Um, mm. And the idea there is uh, like, you know, following two thousand eight, you know, the the economy needs to be stimulated. So we need, you know, we want people to uh, we want consumption levels to go up. Uh, we want you know people to be. We want to make it easier for people to access credit, and so that. Therefore, for businesses to access credit, therefore, um, you know, they can they can put more into growth and they can raise CapEx and they can do new project developments. And that will all together that will bolster uh, the aggregate macroeconomy. And so the same thing basically happened in China, actually, at the same time. So coming out of 2008, that's really when China began ramping up its 
basically more or less quantitative easing on uh, halfway across the world, and they've actually been doing it at like a much faster rate than uh, than than the United States. Somehow, you know, we kind of that that goes kind of un- understated in in the West is we we kind of like don't you know we we kind of like ignore how much quantitative easing has been happening in China. But essentially, you know, since 2008, I would say roughly, China's really been like, you know, we need to get to the top, we need to grow, we need to get people urbanized into the cities, we need to get the real estate and construction markets like up and just go, go, go. And and that's really, uh, and throughout that whole like zeitgeist, there have been not just Evergrande, but also other property development companies and construction companies, uh, they've found it extremely easy to just take on um, take on credit and that has enabled them to you know obviously borrow a ton and then put that into new land new new building contracts etc and therefore you know inventories pile up as as you guys may guess you know for a property development company it takes relatively a long time your assets are kind of like locked up for a long time before you can you know produce a final building, complete it and and sell it off. And so there's basically there's this like mismatch or not mismatch, but there's a really long time gap between, you know, when cash flows come in and the money that you need to kind of put down up front before those cash flows come in. So we basically call that uh, your cash conversion cycle. And so because the cash conversion cycle is really long for a real estate company, it means that you know they're more incentivized to take on like to become over levered, and so that's kind of exactly what what has happened. And over the years, it's just it's really just snowballed, and so that's kind of how at this point Evergrande, um, you know, it's kind of like they've been able to take on more and more debt with basically no consequence. Yeah, and so it's kind of like well. You know, if if there's no consequences, why not just grow faster? Of course, we're going to go faster. Yeah, yeah. And, and then you know, that's kind of what brought us to the situation today. And there, there might also be a little bit of like everybody's doing it, so let's. If you don't do it, you fall behind and and you uh, you end up losing. I, I I'd right. like to add one thing about real estate developers in China that I've learned over the years is uh, when they're building a project they'll start kind of selling apartments or homes or whatever early, you know, like years before uh, the project's done. And that is one of the ways they can kind of help finance, you know, some of the, I mean, maybe it's the interest payments on, on the debt that they have, or maybe it's it's other other things. But what they do is they kind of take, so if you think like 100% of your inventory of your homes in that project, they'll take a small percentage and just, slowly, you know, release it out. So like it's if everyone comes, they're not going to just sell to the full demand. They sell and they try to manage the supply in such a way that like the buyers on the early on the earliest buyers that buy at a huge discount to what the eventual price will be for everybody else, they get to see like a nice pretty you know, flat line increasing up to the right, you know, of their value of their home. Uh, so it's like this very nice, smooth, safe-looking, you know, low volatility, well-managed, you know, real estate value that that they have, and so people people do it, and they've been doing it for a long time. I don't know when exactly it started, but uh, it's been going on since 
you know, for at least 10 years. Yeah, I, I think that generally the, um, you know, the, the money printer go burr to use the, the meme that you referenced there, Ming, is something that I think is, is often overlooked when it comes to China, because it's also something that's very much happening, you know, in the U.S. as well. But, you know, for so long, it's kind of been happening at such a greater pace in China, but it has less impact than the U.S. Federal Reserve. But one thing that, that, that kind of was, I, I, it was just some statistic that I read, you know, probably, I think five years ago or so that was really eye popping to me and kind of caused me to look more into it is just looking at, at housing values and how much a house costs compared to how much uh, the average person makes in, in cities, right? So, you know, I'm in New York right now and New York is famously, infamously expensive to buy a house in, right? So, you know, you want to buy a, a 900 square foot apartment that's going to cost you a million dollars in a lot of places or more, right? But also the average person in, in New York, can, you know, makes more money than the average American, right? And, you know, so there is some affordability there, you know, the, it, but looking at in Beijing, you know, a lot of these apartments in Beijing are more expensive than they are in, in New York. <laughs> and yet the average person in, in, in Beijing might be making just a couple thousand dollars a month. And you know, the, the idea of how this, how the, the, you know, the math of that, those economics work out is something that, you know, it just, just is, is mind boggling to me. And there are a lot of reasons for that, but, uh, uh, I, I don't know if, if either of you can answer this question, but I, I do want to ask a little bit about the ways in which Evergrande has kind of expanded, you know, how they have been able to raise money through some of this uh, off balance sheet or, or shadow banking that they've done. Uh, James, I know like you, you, you've, you know, you're a little closer to it be, being in Beijing. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or any ways that you could explain that for the audience or anything like that. Yeah, I'm sure. So the, uh, actually Taishin did a pretty good kind of in depth, how it's called in depth, how Evergrande hit its debt. There's a nice article there, but basically, the way the way it kind of works in China and forever granted it was a little bit differently, but the way it kind of works is you use sort of the shadow banking, quote unquote shadow banking kind of trust products or uh, wealth management products, you can call them. And and what happened is like over the years for the real estate developers, especially, is they've been kind of limited. Like China's been trying to limit the amount of financing they can get. So for example. When I worked in hydroelectricity uh, 10 years ago, you know, we'd be going to get a, a loan for a hydro dam, which is a very long-term safe asset and fantastic, and banks love it. And they're like, yeah, we definitely want to give you guys this loan, but we're worried that you're going to use it on real estate development or investment or something, like funnel the low interest rate loans that we're going to give you and in, into real estate because that's not okay and they're not supposed to make loans to real estate. So there are all these restrictions then. And then I think in the last couple of years, we saw even more restrictions. I think the peer-to-peer -peer sort of smash up um, that created, you know, maybe another loophole that closed another loophole. And then there was recently you saw that PE funds uh, can't invest in real estate. So they're, they're like, they're trying to kind of slowly it's a little bit of like whack-a-mole, right? So one of the loopholes that used to exist uh, is that a, a company could either, you know, their employees or some sort of, uh, even the company itself could invest a little bit of money into like a trust product where they become like the first loser. Where like, if it's sort of like a, 
uh, mortgage-backed security, like the equity piece, they become the equity piece where if there's any losses in cash flow, they have to take the loss first. If there's any gains from cash flow, the other parties take take the gains uh, first. And so if there's anything left over, then then the equity piece gets gets that. And so it's kind of like that, and you can get leverage that way, and then you can, because those products are actually, they're actually companies set up to hold those products, those companies are off your balance sheet. So you can kind of hide things a little bit that way. And this Taishin article goes into goes into that too. Mm. That's a whole other, a whole, we could do it. We could do a number of different episodes on that, <laughs> but uh, Ming, I want to get back to you, <laughs> but what's the, so let's talk about the kind of the precedent for heavily leveraged firms in China. And you know, we've talked about this idea this, this implicit guarantee before that the, the state will step in at some point and ensure um, either the, the success of the company or bail the company out or bail the, the investors out or something like that. So c- can you tell us a little bit about um, you know, what has led to some of these, these heavily leveraged firms in China? Yeah, certainly. So there's, there's kind of two narratives going on, and they're kind of the opposite of each other. So mm-hmm. there's one narrative that says basically China is very different from Japan and the U.S., um, like the the government is is it's not gonna you know take the they're not capitalist and their goals are very different and so they're not gonna take the kind of the BS of, of the West of like you know we're gonna continue QE forever that's that's one narrative and then there's another narrative that says you know well because like you know the goals are stability of the markets you know redistribution of wealth they want to protect their people uh, they want to decrease speculation because of all of that you know they, they 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 will uh, at some they will basically like help out their people and they they will continue to bail out you know some folks but not all folks um, within the capital markets and um, so those are kind of like the the two dominant narratives and the implicit guarantee is uh, if we've looked you know or obviously we don't, we don't know you know what the bailout will look like exactly yet for Evergrande but if we look at previous you know banks and previous capital intensive companies and and how those especially those that you know were on the brinks of brinks of default like what did the government do with them basically the story is is kind of the same it's the government you know these other companies have also grown too quickly taken on too much debt to unsustainable levels and then the government says okay well we're basically going to have these other state owned entities come in buy up your 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 assets uh, or inject capital into you basically at some discount and then we basically take over the company and that's what the bailout looks like basically that happened to uh, Hainan and that happened to uh, Bank of Gansu Bank of like Jinjo a couple others and it could very well happen again with Evergrande and I think Anbang was was similar right yeah. yeah, yeah. And in each case, it's, it's kind of the theme seems to be, you know, we, we punish, you know, some folks at the top get punished, you know, some folks at the bottom get mm, like not maybe not completely made whole, but like partly made whole um, to the extent where like there's no like, you know, massive un- unrest in throughout the country. And then uh, obviously, you know, whoever's close to the CCP, uh, whoever, whoever, CCP is basically incentivized to uh, to keep happy is is made whole, 
um, and then and then you know in, in each case kind of some others will then hold the bag and oftentimes it's it's going to be like hedge funds the the um, the, the executives at the top of the com- of the failing company foreign investors and uh, that's maybe you guys want to, or maybe we can get into this, uh, in a little bit. So another, another, uh, thing like implicit guarantee, I mean, another kind of way that people deal with it on the day to day here is like, if you go to a bank, um, you know, maybe the, the teller or the marketing person is trying to sell you an investment product. If you're buying one that's on a higher interest rate, uh, you know, they tell you, like they make you, I think some places even f- like record you reading a statement saying that like, I understand that this is not guaranteed, that I can, you know, the interest isn't guaranteed and the principal isn't guaranteed and I could lose all my money in this investment. And because it's a, you know, a lot of the banks are state-owned banks, people don't really believe it. You know, they think, okay, well, it's an investment product. The bank is selling it to me. The bank is state-owned. If if it goes belly up, I mean, they're, you know, the state is like literally huge. They will, you know, fix it and, and uh, you know, pay us back. And actually, a lot of banks have done that in the past, for especially for smaller stuff where it's just like too much of a headache, you know, to uh, and people obviously get upset and they, you know, they, you know, a lot of people bought that product and they complain. And then, you know, in order to avoid the negative, you know, kind of, implications you know for management it's just better sometimes like to take a loss and kind of move on so it's been happening a lot i mean i wouldn't say you know these are these are things you can read about in the papers but i'm pretty sure this happens over over the last 10 years this has happened quite a lot yeah for sure so that's that's sort of like where where it kind of comes from and 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 like the way people like they're trying to get rid of it and it's just such a hard thing to get rid of you know because it's it's so embedded in kind of like just the structure of like the economy like if you have so much state-based stuff and you know you're kind of you wonder like okay the state you know like there's and if you add on top like that belief which i don't know if it's true but there's this kind of western narrative that in china the the legitimacy rests on, you know, economic growth. If you, you kind of add that into the equation, I mean, it gets kind of confused. I don't think that's actually the case. Uh, but anyway, yeah, we don't want to get too far into that, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I Well, I was going to say, like, there are there are two factors at, at play um, in terms of, like, the, the people, quote unquote, getting deceived. One of them is for sure, like, there's there's some ambiguity in in the language of the products like the wealth management products that Evergrande was selling you know like i think they were posted like on literally on elevator walls in the in the oh, properties yeah. that they were uh that they were actually building and and maybe like mid building and so there's definitely like an issue of disclosure and transparency and then i think the other issue too is like People just don't read the fine print. Like, even if we did, like, even if they did totally disclose everything, like, that that's kind of not what, like, people aren't, you, you know, human like, nature. Yeah. right, exactly. Yeah. Like, when we read 10Ks, like, all of, 
you know, everyone is like, you know, here are all of my risks and my risks are like 10 pages long. And then they take up like, you know, half. Every time you download and you sign up for an app, like you really read through yeah, all that. Yeah. You're just going to scroll through it. <laughs> and the lawyers write those parts. Right. Right. I mean, I hear, <laughs> I, I mean, uh, there are a lot of people listening to this podcast who uh, don't listen to the part where we tell everybody that this is not investment advice. Um <laughs> Sorry, that's a joke. It is, <laughs> it is that not investment. Right. <laughs> Anyways. Safe yeah. Harbor. Don't confuse people. Yeah. yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Sorry. Do you, I mean, do you have more to say on that point? Oh, uh, no, that, that was it. All right, cool. So, like, what, what I do wonder about is, is how much of Evergrande is how much, how typical are they and how, eight, or, or are they atypical? Is this a, somebody who the 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 one the lone real estate developer that flew too close to the sun or are they just you know the 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 first to fall right so how does their business model really and their balance sheet really compare or contrast from other property development firms in china yeah my take on it is that uh you know i think if evergrand did it i would be hard to believe it would be really hard to believe that you know like the others weren't doing the same. I think there's, if you look at the data, like, you know, a lot of them are over levered. A lot of them have crossed like one, two, sometimes three, three of the China's three red lines. So what this basically means is, you know, their liability to asset ratio is less than 70% or like they don't have enough cash to fully cover short-term debt. You know, a, a bunch of them are, they're not looking great. Like their, um, uh, what's it called like their tier one uh, capital adequacy ratios are certainly less than, you know, the, the, the bottom line that, that China has drawn, which I think is like somewhere uh, around like 8.5%. So a, a lot of them are in like amazing shape from a liquidity standpoint and solvency standpoint. And it just makes sense because it's the same factors that um, macro factors that have uh, shaped Evergrande's management team and caused them to make the decisions that they did. Like those same factors were also at play for, you know, for Country Garden, Vanka, and like some of the others. And I think the, the question, you know, was, was Evergrande special kind of comes down to as you said, the the off balance sheet stuff, the the wealth management products, like are the other companies also trying to not pay their employees and you know just trying to get loans from their employees and not fully disclosing what those loans are and trying to pass them off? Like you know, it's just a very safe, high interest investment vehicle. Like that part is obviously it is unclear. People haven't from the other real estate developers have, have not been called out for doing that yet, but that doesn't necessarily imply that they haven't been doing it. And, uh, but if you like generally look at just the pure financials and the, and the ratios, you know, a lot of the times like profitability wise, like margins, Evergrande, it's, it doesn't look like it's, it's not an anomaly. Like it's definitely Mm. within the bell curve of the rest. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that, that, that fits what I've seen and, and heard and and uh, know about the industry. I mean, I think there's definitely Evergrande maybe on a scale is kind of in a, in a, is just bigger, but in terms of, you know, not looking at degree, but in terms of tactics, I think pretty, pretty normal industry-wide 
tactics. Again, like I also don't know if employees are encouraged to invest in, you know, their own products like that, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's, there's, um, you know, I talked about kind of before the, the, the different channels, you know, whack-a-mole sort of thing. Another channel that's been very frequently used is, is Hong Kong and, and, uh, issuing bonds there. Interest rates are huge. I mean, you can, I think 15, over 15%. And that's very attractive to a lot of people, especially if you kind of believe in that implicit guarantee. Uh, and some of these wealth management products are also offering uh, returns like that. But obviously, if you're if you don't have enough cash on your balance sheet to, uh, or if your inventory is not turning into cash fast enough, or for some reason slows down, and you you don't have enough to cover your short term debt, uh, and you have to reissue debt to pay your other debt, you start entering into a, a pretty nasty, vicious cycle of, um, you know, having to pay that very high interest rate. And then your debt, your short-term debt just kind of starts to balloon out of control. I think Evergrande might be in that sort of situation if they're not. Uh, I mean, we, we had some news the, the other day. It seems like they're going to do some sort of controlled bailout, but uh, it's not the details aren't really clear yet. Yeah. Yeah, what was interesting about that bailout, uh, funny, or you mentioned Hong Kong. Uh, so that's that's one thing that I have been looking at. Actually, even before the news came out, I was looking at, you know, their, the offshore bonds versus the onshore bonds. And uh, what, what I noticed about like two nights ago was that the onshore bonds were trading very close to par, like 99.5. And then the offshore bonds were trading at like 70 basically like 30% uh, discount. And wow. Yeah, and and that was like, huh, red flag, what's going on here? And I think that is because of that implicit guarantee that we've been talking about, right? Like people assume, uh investors assume that, you know, onshore is just going to get bailed out. So, of course, like it's going to trade close to par. Uh like what is there to fear? And then off uh, offshore is like is like why would the government bail out foreign investors? Like, of course, they're going to mm. leave the foreign investors in the dust. And and th- I guess that's what the market was pricing in. And turns out, you know, and then news came out that, you know, Hongda was going to make the interest payments for domestic. But Hongda is Evergrande for the listeners, by the way. Sorry, keep yeah, going. <laughs> yeah, for uh, I think like their, their Shenzhen properties. So Basically, like, or this this division of Evergrande was actually going to make its interest payments, but then you know crickets about the other bond mm. that was due that well Thursday. So it kind of seems mm. to to go the actions so far uh, are in line with kind of with uh, what the markets have have been predicting in terms of uh, differential treatment between um, you know domestic investors versus foreign investors on the part of the government. Yeah. Yeah. Back in yeah, the, the day. The, sorry, keep going, James. An interesting thing about that, that news that came out about them making their interest payment. It's, it wasn't immediately clear if that means that they're, uh, actually paying cash or if it means they're, they made some sort of agreement with their lenders in, in such that they, you know, maybe pay it later or some of the, the details of, of that are not super clear. I, I'm my assumption is they made some agreement that they're going to pay it later or 
or kind of push the can down the road, uh, so to speak. But yeah, we'll we'll see. I mean, this is all playing out right now. It's a very I forget who coined it, fluid mm-hmm. situation. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's a fluid situation about Evergrande's not yeah. so fluid situation. It's a it's a very it's a very <laughs> liquid situation about a not very liquid company. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, right. Someone got someone picked up the pun opportunity there. Right, right. Uh, so anyway, so the uh, the back in back in. Uh, the what seemed like a long time ago but wasn't that long ago back when i was jet setting around asia and uh you know being able to come in and out of china with with ease before the covid days i would you know a lot of these i would i would have all sorts of meetings with people and you know the 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 chats that we would have so much of it was around you know you talk about different companies you talk about evergrand and the what so many folks would say to me and i was always like an evergrand bear um, I mean, not to toot my own horn as seeing this, but you know, I, I, I tend to be something, you know, I'm a Midwesterner, you know, I, 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 I tend to, 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 you know, not be, you know, for these, like these risky, you know, high leverage, uh, situations, I'm, I, I tend to not be super, super bullish on them, but the, the bull case that was given on them was that one compared to these companies like Anbang or H&A, they were not taking money from inside China, you know, and using it to buy external assets. They were often taking, taking capital from outside of China and using it to, uh, to, to finance their growth within China. And that, that was the exception. And that in addition to that exception, they, they would be something that would be so big inside of China that they would be too big to fail, right? That, that the that because they 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 were so diversified in so many different areas they could always borrow money or raise money in all these different areas and and you know and that would keep them safe. Now the the downside of that is we're seeing that <laughs> it hasn't kept them safe, but because of their all that that debt that they built on the the other question here is contagion and and how and what form of contagion could take place and then the the follow up to that is that how how and and why and when would the government step in? Yeah, I think like, you know, contagion is contagion is real. I think it was it was very interesting and perhaps expected that, you know, going into Monday or last week, even uh, commodities markets were really selling off. So like steel, iron ore, copper, um, you know, everything related to construction was selling off because of this, uh, the fear injected due to Evergrande. And, and I think it's kind of the, the, sen- the narrative there is like, could this mark the end of basically the hyper growth in, in construction where there, there will be a, basically a sector rotation away from construction, away from really like just heavy infrastructure, which China has, you know, poured so much into, uh, in the last decade and more into, uh, you know, like sustainable, more kind of semis and high tech and batteries. And, you know, like, could this be kind of the, the changing point in, in that shift? And I think that's, that's a very possible narrative. And I think the, uh, you know, the, the contagion is, it's kind of like, you know, just to a certain extent, like, you know, the, the government, I think it, it's still capable of bailing out, you know, Evergrande and its current debt and, 
you know, uh, you know, it just rolls its printer kind of <laughs> yet another time. And yeah. th- that's fine. It's, it's kind of, it's setting a negative message to, you know, the people considering, you know, the kind of the, the goals of the government are for, you know, greater stability, deleveraging, you know, punishing, uh, corporate uh like top hats that you know want to corporate top hats make a ton of money yeah. at the <laughs> yeah <laughs> or at the top of the food chain fat cats, <laughs> fat cats. Yeah, no, yeah. i like the top hats i got like, there's the monopoly man yeah. you know with the top hat yeah, yeah that uh that want to basically just profit at the expense of the people and they want to the government wants to punish them and um you know it would and I'm sure like they can construct a bailout in which all of that does happen. And the bailout is, you know, happens the, the, the people they want to teach a lesson to actually get taught a lesson. Like that's, I think that's the way that they're going to handle it. And then it's also kind of like an excuse to kind of also tie in the whole, like, you know, as a nation, we are, you know, stepping forward, we're going to be more green, we're going to be, you know, investing in high tech and like, no more like, kind of like the, the, coal mine type of like manufacturing and away from that and now towards like like you know like basically 2021 type of like manufacturing and all that and what that means and so i think but really really to cut cut off the waste i mean the the waste of you know building bridges to nowhere you know the the concrete where like every three years they you know they outpace you know, the rest of humanity or whatever. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Right. <laughs> you know, but, but that kind of, that, that kind of model that is, has, um, kind of characterized China's growth for so long, but also is, you know, destructive in a lot of ways, you know, kind of, uh, at least they're trying to shift away from it. The question is like, what is, there's a lot that goes into that. And there's a lot, a lot of questions there. And I don't, I, I don't know how to answer them. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting to see kind of, because like, Implicit guarantees, I think, are very complicated to unwind. You know, I don't think they were necessarily put there on purpose, right? So they're not all so easy to remove on purpose. So the, the what what's kind of interesting is that even if the executives at the top who've kind of be- benefited and created all this financial instability and excess and all that, even if they're punished, I mean, it's sort of like there's like you said before, there is this kind of structural incentive built into kind of how the industry works, how, you know, the long cash conversion cycles and kind of even with there's still just a very large demand for real estate, people still see that as a good investment. And without sort of like the demand side also getting a little bit of a wake up call, I kind of have a hard time seeing how they're going to really shift, you know, I feel like, like homeowners need to, I mean, they really do think that real estate prices just can't go down. And maybe that's yeah. the case in China. Um, but that was the belief in the U S in, in 2005, six. Well, it is a testament of faith. Like where real estate prices yeah. will keep going up is a testament of like, it is, it is as close to a religious doctrine as things mm-hmm. get in China for the middle yeah. and upper middle classes. So, um, like, obviously they can't just keep going up forever, but at the same time, like that, that means a major shift in expectations. Yeah. Part of that premium too is, is also like, it, it's like the speculative premium or what I call the speculative premium where, um, you know, like people in China largely are not buying homes to live in anymore or, 
or you know dollar weighted like they're not really buying or a good portion of the home buying is is for an investment purpose purely and and then you know you, you extend investment becomes like speculative and um so how much of the you know the the rise in home prices is due to the speculative premium obviously super hard to quantify but i think like that premium is what the government wants to squash i think they they want p- people to you know, go back to buying homes to live in and then like invest their capital and their time and energy into more like, I guess, productive endeavors than speculating on real estate. Yeah, yeah. that's uh, I mean, she has that line. It's like housing's for living, not speculation. Right. That's, exactly. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, so the so the, the what needs to happen is kind of like actions, you know, the, the activity, what people do needs to change. Right. And that's uh that's always a little bit tougher to 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 man, to make happen but i feel like that if we're going to see contagion i think that's where we'll kind of see it play out more so than kind of the financial kind of markets i feel like they can manage that a little bit easier it's the you know if people become afraid of buying homes there's all these other developers out there who have inventory who are waiting uh, to sell and trying to sell and people are re- kind of refusing or they're worried. Uh, I mean, even even like six months of like a, 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 a long slowdown there would be devastating for some of these other real estate developers who have lots of debt and presumably I haven't looked into it, but a chunk of it's short term and, you know, not a lot of cash. You know, that that's I think that's how it spreads more so than, uh, you know, some sort of financial panic where people are dumping the bonds or whatever and causing kind of distress that way. That's kind of uh, if I if I want to yeah. track contagion, that's sort of where I, I would look. Yeah, I also do. I do see a possibility where, you know, real estate markets around the world do get shaken up. Um, or, or the contagion does extend to, you know, real estate across the rest of the world. Since, like, the the proportion of, if we if you look at, like, the top 10 uh, global property companies across the world, and you're like, okay, well, how many of these are Chinese? It's, it's like, very high. I think it's, like, northward of, like, 80%. So it's, like, the, the entire, like, the, the global kind of property industry is so much correlated to what happens in the Chinese property market that, you know, we could, we could see de- definitely contagion there, whether that gets, you know, confined to, I would say maybe like confined to real estate and, and the, the commodities markets that are associated with that. Like, I, I would believe, you know, that we could, we could draw the line in the sand there. That's a plausible narrative, I think, as long as, you know, obviously the, the banking system doesn't get involved with this. And then, I think the other kind of the other aspect of contagion that, um, frankly, like I don't have an answer for, but the thing that is slightly worrying is, uh, you know, given that China, let, let's say, you know, the bailout happens in in a way that you know, international investors get screwed over, if they continually do that, or if if you know this is a if this causes international tension or financial tension in a way that, like you know. Now international investors are just like we're too scared to invest in in China because yeah. you know we're just going to get screwed over. Like the government is just going to bail everyone else out except for us, or or bail the domestic investors out except for and leave us hanging. Then 
then, you know, like how much of, you know, Chinese markets in whether in real estate or in like other sectors are like how much of, you know, the investment is, is from foreign capital. Like, let's say maybe like, I don't know if 50% of that like flees, like what happens to the Chinese markets? Yeah. I don't really know, but I think that's, that is one fear. Uh, and then, that's a big question, you know, yeah. obviously like, and then there's other people who, who believe, you know, people are going to get bitten and then they're just going to keep coming back. Like people are just going to brush it off and forget about it in like a week. And then everyone goes back to investing in, you know, whatever they were in, in Chinese companies uh, all over again. And what, yeah. I, and then I don't know which narrative will happen. Well, it may, it's the, that's, if there's any place that, if there's any country that has the, the heft to do it, I mean, it's China that has the heft to do it. But I mean, I've said this, I, I seem to be saying this every podcast this year and I've, in every article that I write every, this year is that like, that what, what China is doing often and with these very, very bold, you know, policy shifts is the goals are admirable, right? They, they address environmental issues, social equality issues, you know, the, Mis misallocation of capital, like I think is what they're what's happening here with Evergrande. But the the other question there is how many boats are being rocked in this case, and then what in in an effort to use the state to accomplish these goals, you know, what will end up being the fallout there? Uh, and we 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 don't quite know what that is yet. But anyways, we've been uh, we've been talking for a while. And we gotta for the sake of of brevity. <laughs> try try to keep this up a little bit or to tighten this up a little bit. But Ming Zhao, uh, thank you so much for joining us. I do want you to talk a little bit more. Um, I know that you're, uh, first of all, tell us, tell our listeners how they can follow you on Twitter and things like that. But secondly, I know you're in stealth mode right now with your current project, but uh, for our listeners who are, are, a lot of them are retail investors and they, they might be interested in what you're working on. So if you could give them a little bit of a teaser, I think that they might appreciate that as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, so best way to contact me is uh, definitely through Twitter. My handle is Fabius Mercurius. Uh, my DMs are open, so basically just DM me uh, any questions. If you know everyone, like if anyone wants to talk Evergrande or anything else related to any other thread that I've written so far, or you know anything really just fintech related. So about my company, uh, we are currently in stealth mode. Let's just say uh, we, we are anticipating a launch in, you know, first half of next year. So I will definitely be making more noise about that as the time gets closer to launch. But I will say now that it is uh, related to kind of democratization of, of finance. Uh, we're, we're building a, a tool for retail investors and it has to do with, you know, giving the retail investor access to basically access same access as what hedge funds have and trying to even the playing field, um, giving them, you know, the ability to afford certain securities that they today are not able to afford. Cool. Awesome. Well, Ming, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks, Ming. This was fun. All right. Take care. Thanks again to Ming Zhao for joining us. There's a lot to talk about still with Evergrande. But we can't cover it today. Hopefully, we'll cover it in the future, and also we'll 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 hopefully welcome Ming back again sometime in the the near future to discuss that or some other topic as well as her uh, her new startup. James, anything you want to tell our listeners? No, just that I thought it was really interesting, and I do look forward to further discussions and uh, obviously watching how Evergrande plays out. 
Yeah, check us out on uh, Twitter. China Tech Invest is the podcast Twitter. And then I'm James Hall X. Elliot, you are? Elliot Zagman, E-L-L-I-O-T-T-Z-A-A-G-M-A-N. And thanks to uh, all the folks at TechNode, as always, for helping us out with this. And thank you, as always, to our listeners. And we'll catch you all next time on the China Tech Investor Podcast. Bye-bye now.